We're going to go to 1 Samuel 24. If you'd like to turn there, 1 Samuel 24, we're going to talk through this theme here of passing tests with integrity was kind of our theme. The whole month of October has been dealing with integrity. And here today it's going to be about working our way through the tests of life. Uh, so to start today, I've got a 50-question quiz that we're going to pass out to you. We're going to give you about 10 minutes to take it, and then we'll see how well we do today. I'm seeing a thumbs down. I don't see a smile anywhere. You love Jesus? You believe he loves you? Right? Do you believe in the depth of the Father's love? Right? All these things that we've sung about? All right, then we should be smiling. We've got a lot to smile about. No, you're not getting a test today, okay? But you just proved the point that I'm trying to make. No one likes tests, right? Nobody was just digging in your purse, oh, i got to get a pen because I can't wait to take this test. Most of you are like, really? I'm not taking it. How many of you thought that? I'm not doing this, right? You can give me whatever you want. I'm not doing it, okay? Because we've got this kind of predisposition towards testing that it's always hard, it's never wanted, that it just doesn't produce anything good, what's the point, I don't test well, all sorts of things there that we can talk about as it relates to testing, right? So there is no test on paper, no 50 questions. However, I guarantee you that you will be tested today. And you've probably already been tested this morning. Right? Anybody tested not to be here today? Car wouldn't start, iron wouldn't work, clothes didn't match, kids weren't just getting along, didn't feel like it, had other obligations to the other things I could have done. It's like, how many tests did you have to pass to get here this morning? Right? And so it's every day. Tests are relentless. So what we're going to look at today here are some ways, hopefully, that we can work to pass some, pass some tests. We're going to use a guy here by the name of David. You may know this story. Uh, we want to learn his story, but we want to understand as well that his, his day has come and gone, right? David's no longer living. His testing is over. And so when we read this guy's story, it's not to highlight David. We're trying to pull principles from his life that we can learn from. Right? What good is there to make the same mistake that someone else has made? Right? You might define insanity that way. If I can learn from somebody else and I don't have to make the mistake myself, then why wouldn't I do so? And so we're going to try to learn from David here from God's Word as he's facing a time of testing in his life and how he responded to that. And we'll see if maybe this can help us if we're facing a test right now. Anybody feel like you're facing a significant test in your life? Health-wise, job-wise, financially, strained relationships, uh, just difficulty with friends, uh, world not going your way, Clo people close to you not following the Lord. You got any testing in your life today? Uh, I think we probably do. All right, so hopefully this will be something that we can connect with this morning. First Samuel 24 is where we're going to be. And we're going to find a guy by the name of King Saul, and he's in hot pursuit of David, which means he's literally chasing him across the country for the purpose of killing him. All right, that's his end goal. I want to find this guy. And I want to kill him. See, David had been very valiant in battle. And David was the anointed next king. And Saul knew it. And everybody praised David. Said he had killed tens of thousands of people. And Saul had been praised as killing thousands of people. And so Saul looks at this as though it's a bad thing. And so he's thinking, the only way I can protect my kingdom is I have to get rid of David. 
And so he's going to pursue him all over the place. He's going to employ all of his resources, connections with other kings, spies to bring back some word of where he's located. And then they go chase him and they chase him and they chase him. And he's just fleeing here for much of the time here in 1 Samuel. And so in 1 Samuel 24, we're going to find David and King Saul meeting up. King Saul has caught up to David. He just doesn't quite know it yet. David's going to be faced with a very important test here, and we'll see how well he does, whether he passes or not. All right, so we're going to read the whole chapter of 1 Samuel 24. There's 22 verses here, but this picks up with David chasing or being chased by King Saul. The end of chapter 3 is Saul is chasing the Philistines. He gets sidetracked for a minute, and now he's back on to David. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. If David's there, that's where we're going. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep pens along the way, and there was a cave there. And so Saul went in to relieve himself. That means exactly what you think it means. David and his men were far back in the cave. So just know this. Don't think of just a little cave like a little room. Uh, this is a cave that's big enough to hold the whole sheep fold. This is where they would go in for protection. Right? So not just some little cave for four people. This would be massive. David and his men were also in this cave. They're just in the back of it. And the men said to David, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. That's not to say that God didn't say that. There's just not a supporting text or corroborating text somewhere else where we can go back to where God said that to David. I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. How many of you wish God would say that to you? You got any enemies? I'll give them into your hands and you can do whatever you want to them. And I'll I'll, I'll receive that as glory. Would you treat people very kindly? We'd probably like to get even on some people. All right, so here we go. David crept up unnoticed to King Saul, and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And so afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. That's a good thing when your conscience is stricken. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? David had no intention of doing anything to Saul. Right? Saul's just looking for justification to do what he wished to his enemies. All right? What we might wish God would say to us sometimes. This day you've seen with your own eyes, this is David the king Saul, how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. 
May the Lord judge, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And as the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. And may he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Right? Remember, how many men are with King Saul? There's 3,000. David's army is there as well. The king breaks down. King says to David, You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You remember the phrase, when you heap burning coals on somebody's head? Right? You do that with acts of kindness and compassion to people who are angry with you. This is what David's doing here. He's heaping coals on their head. And so King Saul is broken. I have treated you badly. You've been kind to me. You've just now told me about the good you did to me. And the Lord delivered me into your hands. But you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. And so now swear to me by the Lord that you'll not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. That was kind of how it worked. A new king came into town. He killed off everybody else who was connected to the old king. All the family members, children, relatives, they weren't allowed to live any longer because they could serve as an uprising. And so David gave this oath to Saul. Gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right, so here we're going to find David in the middle of a test. Okay, his test is not your test. It's not my test. Your test isn't my test. But we're all tested all throughout our days. How well are we going to respond in these situations? Are we going to pass? Determines on what we do with the test in front of us. All right, so this morning, you guys all went, no, I don't want a test. All right, then take it up with God. You will be tested today, tomorrow, the next day, as will I. It's part of life here. It's reality. So we want to work to pass them. Basically, we're talking here about thriving. So it's not just how do I get through this or get it done, which I'm sure none of you are those kind of test takers, right? You've got 50 questions, you answer it in 30 seconds and turn it in because you could care less. Right? That's not what we want to do here. We want to learn how to thrive in the middle of this testing and so David's going to give us some examples of how to do so. Right? Three things we'll note today out of these 22 verses as it relates to passing life's tests. All right? Here we go. Number one. To pass life's tests, initially we want to think about the glory of God first. Think about how is this going to bring glory to God first. Okay? So in our text we find David where? What's he in? Hot tub? No, he's in a dark cave, all right, if you don't remember. He's in a dark cave, he's hiding from King Saul. Did the king know he was there? No, the king had no idea that David was in the back of that cave. That's the guy he's looking for, and he's this close to him, and yet he has no clue that he is right there. Uh, so David knew this as well. David knew the king didn't know he was there. He was covered by darkness, and he also knew that he was in line to become the next king of Israel. So this is setting up to be a pretty good moment for David. Okay, he's been pursuing me. I've been fleeing from city to city. 
Right? I've been on my own. I've been scared, trying to make my way. And now I have this moment in front of me. Is the king ready for battle? No. We know that because the king's in the cave relieving himself. So his arms, as far as weapons, are down. And he is defenseless. He is an easy target. So all these things are starting, based in my mind, to creep into David's mind as he sees the opportunity in front of him. This is a big test for him. And if you were David, this would be a big test for you. Like, how would we respond in this situation? Would we take advantage of the opportunity to go ahead and kill the one who's pursuing us, call it self-defense, to go ahead and exalt ourselves to become the next king? That's a pretty big test. Now, he's got all that going on, plus he's got his friends saying what? Like, this is your opportunity, right? And not just this is your opportunity, but this is a, this is a God opportunity. God has provided this moment for you, and the right thing by God is for you to go kill Saul. So go kill him. All right, so he's got all the voices around him saying these things. This looks like a prime moment to fail a test. Again, here's what his men say. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. But again, we don't have that record anywhere. Not to say that God didn't say that, uh, but not sure that that is what God said. So in this setting, if I'm David or you're David, what are we going to do? We're going to pass the test? I mean, think of it this way. If you had to be fleeing for months and months and months, and you had the opportunity to stop fleeing, would you take it? You're never being at home, wearing the same clothes, not sure what you're going to be eating, separated from all your family and friends, constantly just feel like I can't sleep because he's going to sneak in and kill me. I think in that moment, that would be a welcomed opportunity just to relieve the stress and the tension of being pursued. And so what David did here, and what you know he did, he went up and snuck up to the king, cut off part of his robe, and he kept that in his hand, all right? And here's what he said to his men. The men that said, God has given you this moment, do what you want to with him. David says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. All right, that little phrase there, the Lord forbid, is really important to understanding this text. See, if the Lord forbids it, then we must what? We must not do it. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It doesn't matter what the opportunity says. It doesn't matter what the people around us say. If the Lord says no, then we must submit. Now, David wasn't perfect. We know that later, right? When he becomes king, there's some things in his life that are just like ours, pretty shady, things we're not proud of. But in this moment, David wouldn't seek his own relief. What he was looking for was the glory of God. And that's why he says, the Lord forbid. Right? The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing. I will not do that. And so as we find ourselves facing tests as Christians, what you and I have got to be mindful of first is the glory of God. Right? It's not about my own relief. Yet when we're under that test, typically we want to get out of it quickly. Right? How can I get this over with? Like, this is hard. I don't enjoy this. I want out. And yet what we've got to do is learn to remain under, as we've talked about recently. 
Now, last week we found Jesus in the garden. Remember that? Jesus is laying down with his face to the ground and he's praying to his Father, saying, if there's another way to bring about the salvation of people, let's, let's go another way. Right? Deep anguish. And then he finished by saying, not my will, but your will be done. You know what you call that? That's the glory of God first. Right? Heavy weight, heavy struggle, heavy trial. It's okay to pray for your relief, but more importantly, what you and I must be seeking, what we must be about, is the glory of the Father. So that's the ultimate desire. If the Lord forbids it, I've got to submit. And so here's a way to think about that. If I find myself saying, I know that God has said this, but we're probably beginning to track down a road that is going to be dishonoring to God. I know the Bible says forgive, but let me tell you why I'm not going to. No takers? Ever been there? You might be there right now. Treating somebody as dead even though they're still living? You're dead to me. I'll never talk to you again. Okay? That doesn't line up with Christian theology. Zero places. I know the Lord says, but. I know the Lord says I should give. Be generous with what's in my hands, but. And I want this, and I want this, and I want this. Anytime I find myself saying, I know the Lord says this, but that should serve Corey and that should serve you as well as a red flag. I know the Lord says, don't seek revenge, but. You ever sought revenge? You ever had an opportunity to take revenge and take it and realize just how foolish you were? Then for a few moments it felt good. Oh, you should have heard what I said. Man, I got them good. I stung them hard. They won't ever bother me again. And you feel tough for a day, and then you feel like an idiot because you showed yourself, right? There's no class there. There was no integrity there. A demonstration of integrity is when you and I have the opportunity to get revenge and don't take it. When I have the moment to get even and I back away and go, God, may you be glorified in this moment, there's a sign of integrity. Not just class. People that don't believe in God can have class. This is integrity. People who line up with God. I know God says I shouldn't seek revenge, but... I know God says I should trust him, but on this point I disagree. You ever disagreed with God? This can't be the plan you have for me. I know your word says this, but I think this is better for... This seems to be a better fit or better situation in the scenario... And so I'm going to go this route. I think you would be okay with me going that route. Like God's going to compromise with me. Anytime I find myself saying, I know God says, but I'm heading down a road where it's me first, which brings dishonor to my God. So the phrase that we want to be guilty of saying is, I know the Lord says, and. I know the Bible says, and. The Lord forbids, and I won't do that thing. Right? Concern for the glory of God first. And so I know what he says, so I will forgive. I know what he says, so I will give. I know what he says, so I won't seek revenge. I know what he says, so I will trust, even though it doesn't make sense to me. I know what the, the word of the Lord says, and I will submit. 
So if we want to pass life's tests, this is where it starts. One, you've got to know the Word of God. Right? I can't lean on something that I don't know, which screams and begs us to get to know God and His Word as much as we possibly can as long as we're on this planet. Be a student of the Word of God more than you are anything else on the planet. More than your wife or your husband or your kids or your job or your hobby. Know nothing better than the Bible and no one better than Jesus Christ. In doing so, we're preparing ourselves to pass each and every test each and every day. Working the path starts with the glory of God first. It's not about me, it's about him. Number two, to pass life's test here, we're going to wait on God's timing. And I don't know about you, but this is such a struggle for me. When I read about generations of people in slavery, the Israelite community, over 400 years they were in slavery, you think they ever prayed to God and said, God, get us out of this? Would you? I mean, we're talking five or six generations of people who prayed, God, don't you see us? You've got to get me out of this. And they lived and they died as slaves. God's people. And I have a hard time waiting a day or a week for an answer to my prayer or waiting for God to move. And sometimes I don't see what I want to see, and so it's like, what's the point? The point may be that there was a shoebox in the hand of a young man that's a seed planted that you don't know squat about, and God's going to use that to draw himself, draw that child to himself. Right? Could be just kindness to a neighbor over a fence. Could be holding a door open for somebody at the grocery store. Paying for somebody's food in front of you or behind you at a restaurant. Right? Just being mindful of the opportunity. God, you put stuff in my hands. How do I use what you've given me to bring you glory? We want to look for those opportunities. Here the opportunity is to wait. Wait for God's timing, especially in the middle of a test. Now, it's hard to remain under. You guys remember that Greek word a few weeks ago, hupomeno? Hupomeno was to remain under. We talked about when we are pressured, we're feeling the pressures of life. We want to get out from under the pressure. Right? But to build us, we've got to remain under. And here we see why. It's for the glory of God, but it's also for our good as we talked here a few weeks ago. And so I need to wait for God's timing. David's friends were urging him to take advantage of the moment, though, weren't they? This is the time. No longer waiting. We've been on the run for long enough. Now is the moment. And they were even saying that this would be God-honoring. Listen, sometimes we've got well-intentioned friends who do nothing more for us than kind of cloud our ability to make good decisions. They mean well, all right? They care, but they're sharing their opinions rather than truth. And so again, I need to run back to what the Bible says. Working with middle school and high school students, just this is almost an everyday discussion. They think this way. Okay, but what does God say about that? Run back to the Word of God to build your faith. Build what you believe on who God is and what He has said. So David's friends are saying, hey, this is a God-honoring moment. Take it. And they were clouding his vision. It reminds me of Job's friends, if you know the story of Job. Job's friends were coming along telling him that he had sin in his life. That's why all these bad things happened to him. What, what they didn't know is that God allowed the What? Starts with a T and ends in S. The trial or the test. 
God said, I will allow this to Satan. You can do all of this to him, you just can't hurt Job himself. And all his friends were saying, oh, this is because you're a sinner. It's because you've got unrepentant sin in your life. You need to confess your sin. Didn't have anything to do with that. See, sometimes well-intentioned friends cloud our ability to see clearly or to make good judgments. And David knew that here, and he wouldn't allow that to be the case. All right? Let's go ahead and read it. We'll talk a little more about it. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men. The Lord forbid. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Right, so David not only himself wouldn't sin, but he was going to use this as a teachable moment. You think it's right to get revenge now. I'm telling you the Lord forbids this, and I'm not going to let you do it either. Surely some of those men would be like, we're going to follow you. We'll rise up. We'll kill him for you. You're the next king. It's time for us to rule. And David wouldn't allow that to be the case. And so he was teaching them an important lesson. It's never right to do wrong. It's never right to do wrong. You'll never find God honored in doing wrong. When we want to hurry up the process, sinning to get to the plan of God is never God-honoring. Who was the next appointed king? What's his name? David. God's appointed him. God's anointed him the next king. And he knows it. King Saul knows it. Why not just go ahead and speed up the process? One, because it doesn't bring glory to God. And two, it's up to God to deal with this. So wait for God's timing rather than hurrying up or taking matters into your own hands is what David speaks here to his men. See, sinning to get to God's plan, as we just said, is not trusting God. And contrary to what some in this world believe, right, the end does not justify the means. I can never get to where God wants me to be sinning all along the way, trying to speed up the progression, the process. And so I need to wait God's timing. Paul said it this way, Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This is an Old Testament quote. So David would have known this, I will repay, says the Lord. This is mine to take care of, not yours. So though your friends are telling you this is a God moment, it certainly was not. And so was the pursuit of David David's fault? Did he deserve to be pursued by a king Saul? Had he done other, anything other than fight for the king, be uh, honorable towards the king? He's never been disrespectful to the king. He looked after the integrity of the king. He cared about the family of the king. All he's done is everything pro-positive for the king. He's done nothing to earn this moment. And yet he's being pursued. And so again, I just wonder how tempting would it have been just to go ahead and take advantage of the moment. But it's pretty easy to get up on that soapbox, isn't it? It's pretty easy to get up there kind of high and mighty. I didn't do anything to deserve this, so in my mind, that justifiably, I can go ahead and deal with this. Because I, I don't deserve what's happening to me. This is his fault, not mine. No longer running from cave to cave, town to town. Could go on with his life, next step, become the king, inherit everything that's a part of being in, in charge of a kingdom. All the people around you saying, this is right. 
It's a big test. And yet he trusted God initially for his glory, and he trusted God secondly there to wait his timing. And so if I'm going to pass the test, I've got to learn to wait. I've got to learn to wait. Trust the leading of God. People around you might be saying, it's go time. And God's saying, no, it's no time. You've got to wait. You stay right where you're at. I know you don't understand. That's right where I want you. All right? You're in a dark cave. You see clearly in the darkness? No. You're stuck in there and you're under it. And you don't know what to do? Wait. God's led you this far. He's not willing just to drop you and say, figure it out now. You know, we just get in such a hurry. Right? We try to make things happen quickly. We need to wait God's timing and trust God's timing. You know, an example of this, we have family members and friends, neighbors, that would be good for them to be here today. Wouldn't it? And not because we're anything great or we've got something that other churches, it would be good for them to be in a church somewhere that honors God. Striving for that. And so what if we took a break for about an hour and just went and got everybody we could and convened back in an hour and made them sit here? Would that be a good move? No. And if they came willingly, that's one thing. But if we're dragging people and stuffing them in cars, pulling them off soccer fields and wrestling mats, throwing robes on them, getting them out of showers, pulling them out of restaurants where they're currently eating breakfast, say, sit here because it's good for you. No. And yet sometimes we want to do that. And we get in conversation with our neighbor or a spouse or children, and we just ramrod them with the gospel because we just are scared, and I get it, that they're just going to keep walking further and further away from the Lord. Keep trusting this into the Lord's hands and wait His timing. And my grandma was 80 years old when she became a believer. That's 8-0. We prayed for her as long as I can. My furthest memory back is pray for Grandma and Grandpa Penn. We didn't drag them to church. We invited them. Did they come? No. We talked to them about our Christmas programs and all the things we were part of. Did they come watch? No. Did they love us? Yes. Did they need to be dragged to church, force-fed the gospel? No. We just needed to wait their timing, trusting that to God. Now, between them and God, they may have rejected. If you talk to my dad, he'll tell you he believes his, his dad did reject. Now, we had some moments I did with my grandpa. He said, Corey, I believe it just the way your dad teaches it. My dad's taught Sunday school longer than I've been breathing. He said, I believe in God and just the way your dad teaches is what I believe. So I'm holding on to a little bit different hope. But you talk to my dad, he'd say, I don't, I don't believe my dad was a believer. I think my dad's in hell. And that's hard. But all the while, you still got to trust that person to God and his timing. Would have done good to force him in a car and you sit there and you listen about Jesus Christ who died for your sins. You're a filthy sinner. You need to get your life right. That doesn't go well. That's abrasive to us who are Christians in this room. But it's hard to wait for God's timing. And so I'm just trying to encourage you today and as I'm doing, I'm trying to encourage myself. You just got to keep being faithful. Do what you know to do as the opportunity presents itself. Be intentional with that opportunity and talk to them about Jesus Christ. I was sitting in a truck with a guy here this week, Friday, 
And he's bringing up conversation about church. Hasn't been to church in probably 40 years. And just like, Lord, I so desperately want to talk to him about you and about who you are. And so we had an opportunity to talk there about church. You know, his church history is that uh, the music minister ran off with the piano player. And they had a little rendezvous in a church auditorium on pews. And he said, church is nothing but hypocrites. I'd never go back to a church. And so I want to drag him here this weekend. And you sit right here. Let me show you what church looks like. We're imperfect, but we're trying. And we show grace and we extend forgiveness. And I just pray for Jim. I'm waiting God's timing for that guy. It's hard. But I've got to trust his plan. Trust that he'll give me an opportunity or trust that he'll give someone an opportunity to speak to that guy's heart. But when I get it, I want to take it. And I encourage you to take it when you get it as well. Seek his glory first. You want to pass the test? Be patient. Wait his timing, even though it's hard. And then three here, remember that it's God alone who's going to be our judge. It is God alone who will evaluate you, who will evaluate me. And so I'm looking to pass his test. He sets the standard. Okay? Now we try to hold one another to that standard. We work to build and encourage each other, and that's right. But ultimately, I'm not your judge. And I can't call the shots over you, just like I can't over my grandpa Penn. But what I know is that he stands before one who will be right in his judgment. God is the only judge, ultimately, who will evaluate us. So David's listening to these voices around him and he could have acted on what they were saying and he could have had a clear conscience. If all these guys are saying this, this must be right. I mean, we did hide in this cave and he, the king did come in here and it's, it seems like a little bit more than coincidence and King Saul says it even of himself that God brought this together, God allowed this to happen Maybe I would have been justified in taking his life. He could have had a clear conscience even and been guilty before God. And so what you and I have got to remember is ultimately I'm going to come before God and give an account of my life and so are you. And so I want to prepare you and help encourage you on your journey of faith to be ready for that conversation. Not to be perfect, but ready. May the Lord's judge between you and me is what David says to King Saul. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. But my hand, I will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? And who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. And may he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. So David's not looking for the approval of King Saul. He's not looking for the approval of the men of King Saul, the 3,000. David's not looking for the approval of the army of men who were with him, saying, go get it, this is God's time. David says, I'm going to entrust this to the God who will judge me. And he turns it over and he leaves it there. Paul does the same thing in the New Testament. He says, I care very little to the Corinthians. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. 
My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what's hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from whom? From God. So this is what David is telling us there, that we need to live in such a way that we are preparing ourselves to come before God. David could have had the approval of his men, but had the displeasure of his God. And so he wouldn't trade one for the other. Right? And I hope that's the same way in our life. We can seek the approval of people. Well, he's a pretty good person. He does X, Y, Z. He must love God, and God's going to praise him. And we can encourage one another. Don't misunderstand me. Or we can live in such a way where I'm preparing to come before God to receive his praise. You know what? To get praise from God may mean I get disapproval from you. You may not like decisions. You may think wrong directions. You may not like actions. And I may feel the same way towards you at some time. But I am not your judge unless you're living in ways that are dishonoring. And it's the same way towards me. I'll wait and stand before God as you will. So I want to encourage you, build you, push you, and I want that same in return as we get ready to come before, before our God. Do you think God will change his mind if I'm standing there before him and he's displeased with me if all of you are around me going, but he did this and this and this and we told him it was a good thing. You think God's going to go, oh, well, since the people said they thought it was good. No. So I get it. Well-intentioned people mean well. And I've been that person sometimes who offered great opinion. It was just bad advice in the moment. It wasn't God's. And so I want to prepare you, and I want you to help me prepare as well for that moment. We're here today, right, the last Sunday of October. This is reality. And our reality one day will be coming before God and giving an account of our life. Every person in this room, you will not miss that appointment. Right? So we might skip doctor's appointments because we're feeling pretty good. We might skip some test appointments at school because, ah, who needs to take a test anyway? Education's not that important. Lots of people never went past kindergarten and they've got lots of money and created great businesses. That's true. You will not skip the moment for you to come before God. That day will come for you and for me. And so are we ready to meet him? Are we prepared to pass his tests? Ultimately, he's a God, the judge, who makes no mistakes all his judgments will be right. So this morning, looking at passing life's tests, and here we all said right from the get-go, oh, no test today. And that's a test in itself. Tests are a reality of life. And to pass them, initially here, we talked about God's glory first, not my relief. We talked about waiting on his timing rather than rushing ahead of him not sinning to try to get to God's plan, and then remembering that ultimately I'm going to come before God and give an account of my life with what I've done with what he's given me. The first thing he's given to me, as that young man told us in the video, is a gift. And that gift has a name. And his name is Jesus. 
You know the thing with the gift is that it's freely given. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. Just like he said in the video, I showed up at class one day and on my desk was a shoebox. It was a gift. The Bible teaches that God gave us the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And in this gift is salvation. In this gift is forgiveness, life, real hope, peace, guidance, comfort, right? eternal life. In him we find the preparation to come before our God. And it all starts by just acknowledging that I am a sinner. And that God gave his son Jesus to be my savior. Paul wrote and said it's by believing in your heart. Jesus is the son of God. And by confessing with your mouth that he is resurrected. Believing that he really is the son of God. Putting your faith in him. That you will be saved. That's where passing life's test all starts. You want to be ready to come before God? Start by acknowledging your need of Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I want to plead with you today, if you've not done so, to do that and confess Him. Be the Lord of my life. I repent of my sins and I ask you to forgive me. His promise is He will. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, how's it go, church? Will be saved. Not might be. Hope you make it. All right. It's concrete. Will be saved. Maybe today God's drawing you to himself. Maybe today a seed was planted years and years and years ago, just like a shoebox, and God is saying, that's why that was planted for this moment right now. Trust me as your only hope. Receive me as your Savior. I will forgive your sins. I will live within you, and I will begin to do this renovation work in your life that prepares you not only to, to pass well here, but to get the praise from God when you come before him.